I want to um, just real quick before we get to the sermon, scripture that um, God brought to my mind this morning. In Matthew 19, you don't need to turn there. But as I, as I was driving in this morning, um, as I was driving in, just God, what, what's a theme maybe or what's something that, that I could encourage the congregation in? So right here, um, verse 20 in Matthew 19. All of these I have kept, said the young man. What do I still lack? So there was, a, there was a, uh, the rich young ruler who asked Jesus what he needs to do, right? To inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he replied, I, I have kept all of these, what do I still lack? And Jesus says this in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have the treasure in heaven, then Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. As I was thinking about that this morning, driving into the church, I felt like God was just saying, you know, like, what great wealths do we have in our lives that we're unwilling to give to him? And there's areas um, where we walk away sad, right? Like, Ah, uh, I'm not ready to give that up. Anyone there? Anyone have some things in your life where you're just like, but I'm not ready to give that up. I could kind of relate to that guy when he walked away with displeasure. So what does God require of us? This willingness to be willing to give up everything for him. Not some things, but everything. So because I saw some hands raised, and my hands raised as well as, as I am confronted by things that, that God's asking me to give up and you to give up, I want to live this life where I'm willing to say, God, I give you everything. Amen? Like, I'm thinking straight today because I'm at church. But when I leave here and Monday hits and then pressure hits and then other stresses hit and then family things hit, I might not be thinking straight. But in the sincerity of my heart, we're going to pray again, and we're just going to ask God to, um, to help us and lead us and guide us to give up everything, those areas that, that we're intentionally holding back and unintentionally holding back. Amen? All right, let's do that real quick. And you guys, you guys pray to God as well and ask him to help you. Father, I pray that, that you would continually build in us people who are willing to give up everything to lay down anything that you ask, Father. I pray that, that it would be a joy for us to say, God, we trust you when you ask us to give you certain things. So, Father, um, open up our hearts to everything that you ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Acts chapter 18 is where we are at. And... Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to do a quick review, and then we will proceed. But really, one of the things that's important is 
when going through each of these um, chapters, per se, in Acts, it's important to understand when Paul is in a certain location, who is he preaching to, right? So certainly, the demographic in Mechanicsburg is different than Urbana, and then the demographic in Urbana is different than Springfield, and then the demographic in Springfield is different than Marysville and West Liberty, and so on and so forth. You get the point, right? There's different cultural things that we do that make sense to us while others might not understand. So understanding that context is important. Same thing. If, if each week we had hip-hop and R&B leading worship, we would still be here because we're good people. Well, good, good enough people. We're decent people. Because if I say we're good people, then, then that actually goes against Scripture. But we would be here. We'd have some opinions about it. But it doesn't fit the culture that we are as Mechanicsburg hillbillies, does it? I mean, look at the way you hung the picture in your house. You got duct tape on the four corners of those pictures. You got three strings and 14 nails. We're hillbillies let alone look at the fences that we've put up in this town. What is a fence, right? Four-by-fours are supposed to go straight up and down, not sideways leaning against a porch tied down by a, a cinder block. We're hillbillies. So Paul, what he's doing is, is each area that he's going to, he's almost studied them or God's given him some kind of understanding of that culture while he's there so he can preach specifically to them. So it is important to understand who Paul is preaching to just to know them a little bit better. Sometimes it's easy to assume that all Paul did though is when he went to each location was preach the same message, right? Preach the same message the same way. Though he did preach the same message, he didn't do it the same way. So what's happening today is through this introduction, you're being equipped to understand that when you're preaching to your kids about who Jesus is, each kid is different. Each kid has their own unique response, which means just as when you punish them or discipline them or when you... Um, talk to them, there's, you tailor that message to them, right? I'm not a parent yet, but you probably tailor it. My parents never had to punish me. Actually, I did get to a point where my mom was trying to give me a whooping, and when she was giving me that whooping, it just didn't hurt anymore, so I laughed at her. Disrespectful, yes, but then she didn't know what to do anymore, so then she gave up. Nevertheless, you tailor it to different different kids. So Paul didn't, he preached the same message, but he tailored it wherever he went. It's not like going to a, a Boston concert or a Taylor uh, Swift concert traveling show where you get the same message everywhere, right? It's the same show. So if you've been to a concert in Cincinnati to watch Taylor Swift or Styx or Boston or ACDC, and then you go to Columbus three days later, it's going to be the same exact show, right? The only thing they're going to say is, if they remember right, then they're only going to say, Columbus, we love you. 
instead of Cincinnati, we love you. That's going to be the only thing different. And what's really great is when they mess up and then they're in Columbus and they're like, Chicago, we love you. And we're like, wow, we are not Chicago. Nevertheless, Paul's message was not, um, Paul's message to the churches was not always let's sit down and get coffee and then ask the person if they know Jesus. It was not a canned approach. His message was not, let's live your best life now. It wasn't a script. There wasn't a pattern. So in Philippi, to the jailer, Paul preached Jesus as a personal savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household will be saved. And then in Thessalonica, Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish, Jewish scriptures the Jewish Messiah. Paul um, is at a synagogue in Thessalonica, and he uh, reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So you see two different approaches here. And then in Athens, um, what we covered last week, he begins um, generically or generally with, with God and works his way down to man. One of the worst things about our culture today is Christ starts with us and then it goes to him rather than with God and then to us. We have this theology that always starts with man and we need to change that. It all starts with Jesus and then comes to us, not starts with us to him. Nevertheless, that's what he did in Athens. He started with God. He worked his way to man, saying that God is the creator. These were some of our points last week, right? God is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the ruler, he's the father, and he's the judge. That was Paul's sermon to those in Athens. So not only was Paul willing to tailor that message, he was also willing to make a sacrifice, and he was willing to make a traveling sacrifice as well. So I think of those from the West Liberty area, the Bafountain area. You guys travel. And I think of you guys from West Jefferson and Catawba and Urbana and Springfield. You guys travel. There's, there's a small sacrifice in that. But Paul was really willing to make sacrifices when it came to his traveling and preaching the good news of Jesus. So not only was he willing to face those types of sac or make those types of sacrifices, he was beaten up, he was put in jail, he was made fun of, but that was it, wasn't it? Certainly not. This wasn't Paul just getting up out of his cubicle, right? When Paul made these sacrifices, traveling-wise, it wasn't him just going to the next cubicle or knocking on the neighbor's door or just driving from Bell Fountain or West Liberty or West Jefferson or Catawba or Springfield, Mechanicsburg, Marysville, London, wherever we represent. Paul was making a huge journey with, or a huge sacrifice with his life in all the areas that he traveled. He was willing to follow God wherever he led him. Wherever God led Paul, he was willing to go. 
And that's where I feel like sometimes I say, God, I'm not ready to give that up yet. And I, I, I see that place in my heart where, you know, as I've said before, if God asked me to move to Mexico tomorrow, I'm not sure that my heart's in that place. I want to be in that place. So God, please, please open up my heart to do that. But if he said, leave everything behind tomorrow, I'm going to have to work some things out. Several people have calculated how far Paul has traveled during his second missionary journey. And that's what we're seeing right now. God sending him out on his second missionary journey. So how far was it? Um, several people have said it's around 3,000 miles that he, has, um, that he has journeyed. So you would start here. Um, we'll pull this one up here in a little bit as well. So I guess I won't go through that quite yet. But 3,000 miles during his second missionary journey. And some of you may be thinking that I'm telling you to be like Paul. We asked that last week and the week before. Am I specifically asking you to be like Paul and travel around America and make disciples? I'm not. Am I asking you to become an evangelist or a preacher? I'm not. Am I saying that, that you need to lead a crusade? I'm not. What I am saying is I see that Paul has devoted his life in such a way to God that whatever God asks, he's willing to do it. So we see the man in all of his sufferings. He's beat up, 40 lashes minus one, thrown into jail, and he continues to say yes to God. Let alone on top of that, he's traveling thousands of miles across crazy makeshift boats. They didn't have our boat technology. Across land with animals and still saying yes to God. But within our culture today, we say, God, we will say yes to you once you do this for me first. Right? I will follow you if you do this first. That wasn't Paul. So I'm not asking you to be a preacher. I'm asking you to have a heart similar to Paul's that surrender to God that whatever he asks of you, you say yes to him. Amen? Will you become God's yes man or yes woman? The seriousness that Paul had was astonishing. I want you to have the seriousness that Paul had. Yeah, sure, faith without works is dead. So our life, Paul, as we look at his life, he had faith and he also had works. In our life, there's going to be faith and then works have to accompany that, right? Now, we understand that Scripture also says um, it's not about our um, works as well, right? So that no one can boast. But it's also, it's not faith with good intentions. It's not faith with good thoughts. It's faith without works is dead. 
I wonder and I think that the church in general believes that that scripture says faith or lives into the scripture of faith and good intentions. Faith without good intentions is dead. Faith without good ideas is dead. Many of us within this culture have good intentions, have good ideas, have pure thoughts, purish thoughts. <laughs> that is a good word, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is, that's not what the scripture says. I convinced myself for far too long that just because I thought it, that I was doing it. And you know what? I think I was thinking my way to hell. My heart was convincing me that I was actually living the faith and living, living the life of Christ when in reality, I was just thinking about it. Just because our heart convinces us, convinces us of our intentions being works doesn't mean it's true. Can you guys relate to that at all? I think most of you each week think about how you can help someone, how you want to grow closer to God, how you um, want to preach the good news of Jesus to someone, and you think about it, 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 and then you think about it, and then an opportunity comes, and then now you beat yourself up, and then you think about it some more, and you think about it some more. And there has to be a point where within our life we become similar to Paul. Our focus is never, we, we, we want to be like Jesus. But as, as we learn about Paul, we're going to use him as an illustration. Paul was just willing to say, enough is enough. I'm going to live for Christ. And we're seeing what living for Christ looks like in Paul. So my question is this, is why do so many Christians have such a difficulty living for God. Because I don't see that in Paul. I see Paul willing to just go for it. And here's what I know about Paul. Paul was 100% man. He wasn't 100% man and he wasn't 100% God. Paul was just 100% man. And I hate that sometimes people try to even elevate him just because he's in the Bible. No, the only one who's ever elevated is Jesus. Paul's human. So I'm not going to say, well, I could be in the Bible or you could be in the Bible, but here's what I'm going to say. Your story could also... Don't hear me speaking blasphemy. Paul was just as normal as you. So if you were alive 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, and God chose you to be a biblical character, then he could have wrote your story as well. Paul's normal, but Paul chooses Christ. And he was willing to be beaten, I'm going to keep on saying it, beaten and abused, put in jail, made fun of, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, all these things for Christ. 
So sometimes what we end up saying is we say, well, well, Jesus didn't fall to temptation because Jesus was um, God. Paul's still a sinner, but Paul still lives full-heartedly for Christ. If you send me here, I will go. And I was talking to um, some people even yesterday where it's like, we plan our life. We plan our life. We plan our dreams. And then what we do is whatever we have left over, we try to fit God in. Really unique, right? That's what we do. And my illustration to them was like, these are some really nice lights that you have in your house. These are some really nice lights. And that takes some time. And I'm not saying anything bad about nice lights or house renovations. But if, if your life is always consumed with the things that you have to do for your kingdom, then where are you ever going to have time for God? And if you're more worried about your kingdom than you are God's kingdom, then you need to take a step back and say, God, what's going on? So they said, well, the, ha- the lights were in here when we bought the house. That's not what I was saying. What I'm saying is, is we've busied our lives so much with things that might not matter when it comes to eternity. And then telling God that we don't have time for him, that we're completely missing the mark. So what was it about Paul that went from a murderer chasing after Christians to kill them to being someone who says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we learned about that earlier in Acts when Paul, when Paul had a true conversion, right? The Damascus Road experience. He meets Jesus, a, a bright shining light, right? He was blind for several days. And he repented of his sins and followed Jesus. He did it. His faith is not dead, and here's how we know why. Works accompanied it. And thus far, I don't see Paul complaining about it either. I don't see Paul grumbling about having to read his Bible. I don't see Paul complaining about having to go to church. I don't see Paul um, frustrated that he's in jail. The creator of the universe is living in Paul now. When he had the Damascus Road experience, Paul was born again um, a couple days later uh, once he repented of his sins, right? It wasn't at at the uh, Damascus Road experience that he was saved, but it was once he repented of his sins, So Paul now has the creator of the universe living inside of him. Born again. God is living inside of him. And we see that throughout scripture. That he's willing to serve God as a transformed being because God is living inside of him. How can the American church have millions of people born again... but us not see them living out the walk and us see them prioritizing everything else in their life other than Jesus. 
I believe that Paul was a complete new creation. How can we be new creations and born again with the creator of the universe living inside of us and not be different? Right? Amen? When God lives inside of us, there has to be something greater than just good thoughts. There has to be something greater than just good intentions. See, when, when God comes to live inside of you as a born uh, as a born-again believer, not just the power of God lives inside of you, and I'm not saying to just start making Lamborghinis to pass out to everybody, but if the power of God lives inside of you, then what that means is you are able, you're able to run from sin a lot easier. You're able to be willing to get punched in the face. You, you're willing to be made fun of. And you're like, well, well, I'd take a punch for Jesus. Well, let's preach the good news this week, right? Preach the good news this week and see if you're not made fun of. But there's three responses that Paul, that we've learned through the book of Acts so far, that's going to take place. You're going to have people who repent. You're going to have people who have more questions. And then you're going to have people who just don't care. So when we preach the good news as born-again believers, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have people who repent. You're going to have people who have more questions. And you're going to have people who just don't care. So I see that as two-thirds are good results. Every time I preach the good news, I have a 66 point whatever percent of it turning out for my good. I was trying to come up with an Ohio State joke right there. I was going to say like, that's the odds that Michigan has to beat us once and whatever, but it didn't work, so I didn't share it. <sighs> I kind of did, didn't I? <laughs> Just making sure you're with me. So every time I share the good news with three responses, two of the three are really good. We always focus on the one that's not so good, the 33%. Why do we do that? Paul doesn't. Paul didn't. He was okay being sent by God with the mission of God to say, God, I'm so in love with you. I'm so thankful for the things that you've done in my life that I'm willing to represent you wherever I go. So my question is, within the American church, and I'm not, I don't know people in California. I don't know people in Texas. But just in general, when I think about what I see and maybe discern, within, with, how about this? The entirety of Mechanicsburg Church, not MCF specifically, but, but the religious people within Mechanicsburg, within Champaign County, within Clark County, Logan County, and Union County, the Tri-Champaign County area. Never heard of that, have you? Are we really born again? Is the church really born again? Not based upon works. I'm not telling you to go do good because you think that doing good is going to get you there. You can't earn it. But is there something in you as a new creation that helps you step over that line of good intentions to actions? 
that you're actually brokenhearted when things don't go your, or of course you're brokenhearted when things don't go your way. Are you brokenhearted when someone that you just hear about needs something? Are you willing to give up one jacket when you have two? Are you willing to serve and love and engage? Because what I do know is this, my favorite scripture, many people, someone once said it this way, there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven. Many people live on the wide road and enter through the open gate that leads to destruction. And few people live on the narrow road and enter through the small gate that leads to true life in Jesus. And then verse 21 Many will come to me and say, did we not prophesy? Did we not perform miracles? Did we not deliver demons? Did we not do churchy things? And Jesus says, plainly I tell you, I never knew you. A lot of those people are going to think that they were saved. Right? A lot of those people are actually going to be people who came to church and tithed and participated in events and served. And that's scary, isn't it? Now, I'm not trying to be hellfire and brimstone today. I'm sharing with you thoughts that I've had as I've looked at the life of Paul because I'm tired of not seeing the power of God at work within our communities. It's powerless. And it's powerless because the power that we're trying to offer people is science or technology or the power that we're trying to offer people is good ideas that we've come up with ourselves. And if we continue to offer people the power of people, then we're going to get nothing. But if we're willing to follow God, sold out, giving him everything, holding nothing back, then I believe that we will begin to see the power and the fruits of the Spirit in exponential ways. Doesn't sound fun, does it? Are you guys with me or are you just like checking out today? Both? Well, you know what? As I preach this message today, there's some who will hear it. There's some who will have more questions. And there's some who are going to reject it. And my job is to say, God, I'm sticking to your word and I'm going to put it before people and I'm going to pray for people that their hearts will be open so that they hear, their, hear your message so that they can be set free and live for you boldly. Amen. Amen? That's all I can do. Joey, could I? Please, Richard. Yeah. Yep. It's Thanksgiving like weekend, so service is always different. Yeah. Please. Well, this is... do, we ha do we have a microphone? Yep, I got one. So I just want to testify to what Joey is just preaching this morning this way. Uh, Bob Stauffer and Abraham Dungu from Kenya and I we're in the jail this morning here at Tri-County. And each week, usually, the Lord leads us to share some kind of sort of three-cornered message in which we all share something. And it's amazing to see the way the Lord puts the theme together. And he put this exact same theme on our hearts this morning. And I want to give you two illustrations 
of modern day Pauls who've been living right over here in this jail. So there's one guy named Peter who probably should not be in jail. He's, that, that's what it seems like, at least. And, and that's what most of the men in the jail feel, as well as him. But he's walking with Jesus there, and week after week, God is bringing people into his life that he wants to change through a living faith, which works. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing it. And, and many of them are being touched by that. It would not surprise me if Peter from Tri-County stands right alongside Paul in the presence of Jesus as somebody who was ready to surrender everything because that's essentially what he's done it's not a fun place to be in jail uh, but he's there he doesn't know how long he's going to be there but he has accepted that fully he is day after day surrendering his life to Christ and we're seeing the power of God at work through him to touch the lives of others. The same thing is happening through the power of God to change another brother whom Bob in particular has walked with before I ever started going to the jail because he was in and out so much. But God has been changing Doug. He's a hillbilly. He's a good Mechanicsburg hillbilly. Uh, whatever. I'm a hillbilly. I grew up in Kentucky, down in, right down in the middle of coal country. Uh, so in one sense, I'm a hillbilly. But my parents, of course, were foreign to that world, so I got some of both in me, but it's there. Um, this, this guy, Doug, is a true hillbilly. I can't tell you his story. It's too long. But it's a wonderful story of how he has surrendered his life to Jesus fully. And he, like Peter in that prison, is sharing the he's sharing this message of the power of God to manifest itself through a changed life right over here in prison. Now I just wanted to say, you know, I I, I just had to share this when in the middle of your sermon, Joey, because that's what so I come to church, and I keep being blessed week after week with what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in this body, and it's exactly the same message which the Lord was preaching among us there and calling all of us to that same kind of surrender. I thank God. I don't care whether it's in prison or right here in Mechanicsburg and whoever you are, wherever. Somebody greeted us on the way out and said, you must be three preachers. And our, my first response was, yeah, we're three preachers. But then I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, no, we're just three ordinary men whose lives have been touched by Jesus, and he sends us there. That's what he wants us to do. It doesn't mean he wants everybody to go to the Tri-County, but that's what he wanted me to do. And he's blessing me so richly 
as I receive the testimony of dear brothers there who are living like Paul in prison, not because they were out on the street somewhere preaching the gospel in this case, because they got put there, some for good reasons, maybe some for bad, doesn't matter, but they're there. They know God put them there. They've surrendered their lives to God, to Jesus. They're walking with him in that place. Amen. Thank you, Joey. Amen. Thank you, Richard. So the things that you're searching for and longing for, I've just sensed not only in my own heart, but with most people that I talk to, is there's a longing. There's a longing for something different. And the practical piece that ends up, that we end up doing is, is when we feel without, we start accusing fleshly things, right? So when I feel this deep hurt within, then I start to point the finger at people. Well, if my boss would just do this, or if my church would just do that, or if this person would just do this, or if my brother or sister or friend, we start taking this emptiness inside, and because we, we're, we probably just don't want to say what it is, because we're not thinking about it, we're only pointing our problem to the practical things that we see. And it's not those things. The very thing that's going to set you free is Jesus. The very thing that's going to set you free is truth. That's biblical. So if you believe the Bible, the thing that's going to get you out of your season isn't the things that you're pointing to. It's not Netflix once I get home. It's not a shot of bourbon. Do you take shots of bourbon? I know nothing about drinking. It's not wine. It's not getting your toes done. It's not eating three large pizzas. Sounds good. It's not just the vacation. Sabbath is important. It's Jesus. Period. And Jesus at the center. And Jesus first. Amen? And when rough things happen, when we find ourselves in jail, when we find ourselves with no friends, it's Jesus So, in Paul, I see a willingness to serve through a mess, to say yes when it, um, when it hurts, and someone who's willing to give up everything that he had. The rich young ruler was not, will we be? And his commitment was not contingent on things going as expected. The church quits working because they say, you know what? You know what, Pastor Joey? I'm going to take a step this week. And we take a step, and then we get punched in the face. Now, punched in the face doesn't always mean literally. We get a flat tire, and the kids have diarrhea in the new vehicle. <laughs> And then after they have diarrhea, they drop their Funyuns. And then for whatever reason, you had the one vehicle of the 1 in 10,000 vehicles that had a recall on it, and the airbags blew up. And you say, I'm never going to take a step for God ever again. 
right? See, Paul was willing to say yes to God, and it wasn't contingent on it going his way. That's important for us to understand. See, we could be tickling ears today, and what we could be saying is, you know what? When you say yes to God, everything's going to work out your way. When you say yes to God, there, this room will be full. When you say yes to God, just your best life now. We could say that. And you would walk out of here feeling a lot better than you are today. Amen? But I don't want to just walk out of here feeling well. I want to walk out of here with truth. And the truth is, this walk with God is hard. But what he wants is trust from you and I. I want to follow God full-heartedly. Not my way, but his way. Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. He probably said it a little bit differently. He probably said everyone had the plan until they get punked in the faith. Probably the way he said it. But it's the truth. And for you and I as Christians, we all have a plan until we get punched in the face. But you know what? My God's bigger than that punch. And my God's bigger than that scheme. And my God's bigger than everything. No weapon shall prosper against God's church. So when I get punched in the faith, when I get punched in the face, guess what? God's there to pick me back up. So I want to take my good intentions and start taking those actions. And one step after one step after one step to follow God. And scripture actually says that. What does it say? Pick up your cross daily. So if I get punched in the face today, actually this, when I get punched in the face today, someone's not going to like something I said. God bless you, and that's okay. When I get punched in the face, or maybe I get home and I get punched in the face, or maybe tomorrow I get punched in the face, it's God, all about God who picks me back up again. It's not about my strength. It's not about my grit. It's not about how good I am. It's not about how disciplined I am. It's all about God and his willingness to pick me up again. So am I asking you to be like Paul? No. I'm asking you to pick up your cross today and follow Christ full-heartedly. Acts chapter 18, sorry, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So now if we pull up that map real quick. So we started at the bottom right with, uh, in Jerusalem to Antioch to Tarsus. Um, you know, Paul continues all the way to Tross and Neapolis where we were a couple weeks ago. Philippi up top. And Amphipolis, Apollonia, 
Thessalonica, Berea, and now last week we were in Athens, and now he's in Corinth. So you see the little arrow between Corinth and Athens. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But the area that Paul was traveling on in Scripture now is the modern-day Greece. So the city of Corinth, uh, appointed as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar in 64 B.C., estimated population um, during that time was over 200,000. I wish I had a better number for you, I, but I know it was over 200,000 because many people had 200,000, and then some people also had 600,000. So what I can feel really good with sharing with you today is that the population of Corinth was over 200,000. I didn't want to give you 600,000 and then it be 400 or 300. It was over 200,000. You get the point. It was a wealthy... So why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you because this is who Paul's preaching to. It helps you understand why his message is going to be tailored to them. It was a wealthy trade and commercial center. Um known for its quality bronze, known for its architecture, Corinthian columns or Corinthian pillars, and they loved sports. Um, the Isthmian Games was similar to the Olympics, but just a little bit smaller that they would regularly do and compete against um, other athletes from around the surrounding area. Um, they had some fun games, probably like ball throw or whatever. It was just similar to the Olympics. So um, they had two harbors. Um, they had two harbors, and this is what's really important. So you see that area right there. Those were um, on the opposing ends of the red were the two harbors. And I've heard it said two different ways, the Lycaeum or the Lycaeum. Um, harbor was on the Gulf side of Corinth, and then the Sancria, um, some of you are like, what about Sangria? <laughs> the Sancria was on the uh, Saronic Gulf to the east. So um, these are the two different areas that goods and services would go in and out by ship. It was a way that they made a lot of money. So um, cargo would come in and out. But the uniqueness was, is that gap right there, um, I forget what they called it, um, but that's three miles right there. So I think you can go to the next picture. That's fine. So that area right there is three miles. So what would end up happening, go back to the next one, uh, the one we were just at, I'm sorry. So if you wanted to get from one port to the next port, how are you going to do it? Because that spillway was not there. That, um, what's that called? It's not spillway. I have it in my notes. Canal. Yeah, duh. Remember, I cheated in high school. Sin has consequences. <laughs> that canal <laughs> was three miles. Or that, that distance was three miles. But the canal was not there at that point. So if you wanted to get from one port to the next, you had two options. 
the first option was to have slaves and animals or just hired um, teams to unload your ship, carry all the goods across the land three miles to the other port, and then lift the boat up on wheels and drag it across land. Crazy. Or what you would do is you would take the around 200 or a little bit over 200-mile trek around Greece there to get there. So you have days, you have boats that aren't modern-day boats. So what do you think the option was? They never heard from the people who went around Greece. <laughs> never made it. Maybe that's how they discovered America. We're just going to head around Greece here, and we landed in Florida. It's not how it happened. So imagine the culture of hardworking people that, that had to take place. The best bet to solve the problem was to create a canal rather than using animals and slaves to move the material. So you can look at the canal picture now. So that's the canal completed. And this actually was, it was started, it was started back in the day, and, and then they ended up giving up, right? Like, we just can't do this. So Nero started it, started to build the canal, but it was much harder than expected. And the ca canal didn't get finished until 1893. So let's look at this picture. Next one. That's the finished canal. Look at all that hard rock that you would have to get through. So now you see um, why it took so long. So why is this important? Well, it helps us understand some of what their day in and day out looked like. Finally, another important piece of Corinth was the Temple of Aphrodite. And it was located at the top of a 1,750-foot um, high mountain or hill. I think it's more of a mountain-ish. Acro-Corinth um, had 1,000 um, people or 1,000, yeah, 1,000-person prostitution ring that was happening. So at the top of this mountain... They would have a thousand prostitutes that would live up there. And um, pretty crazy, right? A thousand prostitutes in that area. At this location, um, they worship the goddess of sex and love known as Aphrodite. And because of all those who traveled through Corinth as a port city, they could go find those who are traveling through and make business. So you just have people from all over coming in and through. So those up on top of the mountain would come down or they'd come up. And that was another part of their business. They worshipped sex and love. One person said this about Corinth. Sports and business, pleasures and profit, luxury and pride, riches and poverty, debauchery and crime, combi combined to make Corinth the most wicked city since Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, this person probably hasn't seen America. 
So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians what love is, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. We just think that Paul's teaching us about love. We just think he wanted to give pastors an easy sermon for weddings. What Paul was addressing was the core issue of what many of the Corinthian people thought that love was. And what they thought that love was, was sex, prostitution. They worshipped that kind of love. So within context, when we read 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. Paul is, is really rebuking the Corinthian people saying, look, you're wrong. You're doing all the wrong things. So the context of why Paul's writing that is here, is what's happening within the people, the 200 to 600,000 people. He also shares with the church in um, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians using strong language about their sexual sin. That's not what you're to use your bodies for. That's not what love is. But you know what? He also shares the remedy. He also shares with the Corinthian church. Jesus Christ. Amen? Does that help you at all? Or is it just fun facts for me? All right, you laughed. So, helps me. Verse 2. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a, na a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks." And this is really fun for me to think about. And this is going to um, go exactly with what Richard said. So uh, stay with me. Paul was working as a tent maker. Wait. I thought Paul was an apostle. I thought, and don't you love how I can just kind of like sit in my thing right here? I noticed myself settle in, grab this, and... Paul is a tent maker. But he's an apostle. Isn't he just supposed to do God things? Isn't God just going to provide his way? Isn't someone preaching the good news only supposed to be a preacher or on paid staff? Isn't ministry just meant for those people? Why would Paul be a tent maker? Don't all people um, called by God do formal ministry and that's it? No. Paul was a tent maker. Tent making was with leather and it was with some hair. So he was a leather and hair worker. It was something he picked up growing up because it was important for him to learn a trade within his culture. 
So we had to learn this trade. Every kid growing up within his culture would learn a trade. And tent making was the one that he had learned. And this is what makes Paul human. So Paul meets some people with some common interests upon arriving in Corinth. He gets to this place, he just gets there, and then he meets some other people who just kind of get there, and guess what? Oh, you make tents? Oh, me too, I make tents. And it seems like we have a mutual belief in who Jesus is. So what are we going to do? How about we do life together, right? Isn't that what you would do if you went to a strange town? You'd probably find some people. Well, this generation, actually, let me tell you what this generation would do. This generation would stay in their house the whole time and just Facebook people. But if you're a normal person who hates the dark all the time and likes to, if, if you're not a vampire and stays inside all day, you go meet new people and you find people with common interests. And that's what Paul was doing here. He found someone with common, a common interest and that common interest was tent making. So they team up and they create, I don't know, I guess, um, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, PPA, tent making. Incorporated. And that's what they do. And from that day forward, they lived together, they worked together, and they served God together. Paul was a real person, goes to a new city, makes new friends at work, and then they do life with them. But you have to see this. This is what's important, is there's an advantage to being a tent maker. Yeah, it provided some income for Paul. Because remember, at this point, Paul's team, Silas and Luke, are not around, are they? They're still back yonder on the map. They haven't joined yet. So what's the income? We don't know how Paul's making money. And, and at this point, we're not sure that he's supported by the church. Now, some letters, um, some parts of Corinthians, Paul does thank certain people for their giving. But right now, we don't know that. So what's Paul doing? He's working as a tent maker. But it's just not for the income. It actually provides an advantage. But more than the providing income, it provided an opportunity to rub shoulders with the commerce of the city. So one thing didn't change about Paul is wherever he is, he's going to preach Jesus. Whatever he's doing, he's going to preach Jesus. And this was a quote from uh, my, my interview with the elders um, when, when they asked me about my call to Mechanicsburg. And I shared with them, I said, quote, I feel called to Mechanicsburg, yes. I love this community. I want to be in this community. I feel that God is calling me here. But if you guys do not affirm that call, wherever God will lead me, quote, whether that be Chipotle or Sitgo, I'm going to preach the good news of Jesus, unquote. It's not about the position. So if my tent making ended up being Chipotle, Chipotle is the avenue by which I get to rub shoulders with the world and preach Jesus. Paul, in his tent making, was able to use that as a way to walk out the number one goal, which was God. 
And you know what often happens within our culture is we make the number one thing, the money, more than we make God the priority, right? I believe Paul saw tent making through the lens of opportunity and great commission. Remember, this is a large port city, so people were coming in and through all the time. Paul was able to provide goods and services with tent making wherever he went along, um, along with being able to engage a community. I want you to hear this very clearly. So I know at certain parts of the sermon, you're in with me, you're out with me, you're in with me, with, you're out with me. I want you to hear this very clearly. You do not need a ministry title to do ministry. That's what Richard was saying today. Here's the, so when you're leaving and you say, I'm just a normal person. Yeah, I'm a preacher. Well, yeah, you're also just a normal person. So I want you to hear this even more clearer. Ministry is with the people you rub shoulders with each day as a tent maker. You are all tent makers. And tent makers for Jesus. God has shaped you and wired you with specific gifts and talents and abilities to be able to rub shoulders with certain people. Your goal is to preach Jesus as you make tents. So you have a ministry at school. If you're a teacher or administrator, you have a ministry as a tent maker at the factory. You have a ministry at the hospital. You have a ministry online. You have a ministry of tent making at home, at ball games, at coffee shops, with IT jobs, with as a student, as a farmer. You are a tent maker as a neighbor. Amen. God allows you access to other people that's not granted to me. The idea of tent making provides you the opportunity that many in ministry are not afforded. Access. Areas, access to areas in life that are inaccessible to others. I cannot go walk into Honda tomorrow, can I? I could walk in and ask for an application, but I don't get past the doors. I don't have access past the doors. I cannot go into a college classroom tomorrow. I cannot go walk into a retail store or grocery store as a worker. So what I'm saying is, when I go to Bed Bath & Beyond, I can't go beyond. I cannot walk onto the base tomorrow. I cannot walk into a hospital as a staff member, into a surgical room as a surgeon, or a staff meeting tomorrow. I can wa not walk into your house at any moment, especially when there's a disagreement. The list could go on, but God has made you a tent maker to walk out who he is and rub shoulders with people each day 
and share the love of Jesus, just not for your income. Amen? A tent maker for Jesus is dedicated to doing their profession in life in light of the Great Commission. But you say, the scriptures say that Paul reasoned with the Jews and the Greeks on the Sabbath. Well, yeah, he did. He had a regular meeting, just like we have a regular meeting. We reason with one another on, on Sundays. Paul reasoned with, with the Jews and the Greeks on Saturdays. So what I want to say is, you might be asking, well, how do you know that Paul was preaching to the people in Corinth as a tent maker? Let the entirety of Scripture interpret the Scripture. Paul was, I see nothing in Scripture that says Paul wouldn't be preaching. I see nothing in Scripture that says Paul wouldn't be loving. I see that Paul picked up his cross every day and loved on people, and tent making provided him that access. I believe that when Paul reasoned with the, yeah, it was simply because it was a regular meeting. So we're going to end at verse 5, and then we're out of here. When Silas and Timothy came um, from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So his team finally came. Um, scripture talks about um, people who, who gifted them some money and then kind of set Paul free to go out and just do the work each day. Was it the money? No, it was just a season. But now Paul is finally exclusively preaching and testifying to the Jews. These guys brought Paul some resources so that he was able to free himself up to devote himself exclusively to preaching. So the description for today. Paul travels to a place similar to America today. An important trade area. Has few limits when it comes to sin. I don't know if we have, actually, I don't think we have any limits when it comes to sin anymore as a culture. It doesn't mean that individually we don't, but as a culture, there's just no limits. And, um, and uh, Corinth had many different ideas of who God was. While Paul was there, he met two other believers, and they um, decided to host him. Paul ended up working with them, so doing life with them, as a tent maker. And that provided him access to the culture. There are some um, that are called to devote their lives to preaching and testifying daily. There are also those who are tent makers. Amen? Is your life okay if you're just a tent maker? And I'll say it the same way. Is your life okay if you're just paid to do ministry? Because the grass always seems greener on the other side. So what's the prescription Rejoice that God has given you the ability as a tent maker to be a kingdom builder. Ask God this week who you, who you can help build his kingdom within as a tent maker. So what's a practical step of building kingdom within people as a, um, as a tent maker? A practical step is just bring up God in the conversation. And then let God do the rest. Amen? 
You don't need to come with a track. You don't need to come with a plan. Just bring God up. Bring Jesus up in the conversation and then let the Spirit lead you from there. Amen? Find one person this week to build the kingdom of God in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, allowing us to be tent makers. Give us boldness to say yes to you and to follow you wherever it may be this week. I pray that you would break off every lie that we're believing, every lie from our deceitful heart, every lie from the enemy. Father, I pray that this would be a church that is able to reconcile with loved ones, that you would give us the strength and the boldness to reconcile those things, those offenses. And Father, I pray that you would, um, you would just lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to finish the sermon. All right, we got a testimony, and then we're going to get out of here. Um, this happened. This is, okay, this happened to me this week, and I just want to encourage you guys um, uh, with like stepping out and asking people to the Christmas walk. Um, we were just shopping, me and my husband, um, and we were going around to different stores, and anyhow. Um, before we went into Michael's, I just had this really strong sensation like there's something evil and demonic about Michael's. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, what? Michael's? Is Michael's? Like, is there something going on that I don't know about in the corporate or something? We do know Hobby Lobby's closed on Sunday <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. So I'm just praying, you know, as I'm going through Michael's and I'm like, you don't want me to go in, Michael? I, I just, like, had no idea what this was about. And so um, we're just going through Michael's and looking through stuff, and we're praying. And um, then the thought came to me, like, oh, maybe there's somebody here trapped in, like, a demonic or satanic situation. And so, but, you know, I didn't know. And so I'm just, like, prayerfully just going through Michael's, doing my shopping, and um, so then I get like a 49-cent uh, wreath, <laughs> and that was it. Like, and so we're going to go through the checkout, and we get up to the checkout, and this, there was this girl there, and she had a snake tattoo on her wrist, and she had a totem pole necklace, and she had black fingernails, and as soon as I seen her, I'm like, this is it. This is, this is what the Lord, you, you wanted me to see her. And I, I mean, he didn't give me a plan or tell me anything, but I had the Christmas walk um, little flyer in my purse. And the only thing I could think is just give that to her. And I'm just like, so I just checked out. She gave me the money back, and I just gave it to her. And I'm, oh, here, I want you to have this. And I said, Jesus loves you. And I left. I don't know what God's going to do with that, but I really know that that was 
a divine encounter. And um, if you think about it, you know, she comes to mind this week. Please pray for her. And, uh, you know, God is good. So tent making is as simple as whipping out your Christmas uh, walk event and telling someone that Jesus loves them. Amen? Just mention his name this week in your conversation. So every time you bring up how good the Buckeyes are, then bring up Jesus. Amen? All right, you guys are dismissed.